Hello and welcome to the Pharma Forum Podcast. I'm your host, Jonah Comstock. It's 2024, and that means it's an election year in the United States. But don't worry, we're not going to be talking about Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, no, there is another pharma life sciences connection in this election, and it centers on California's 30th Congressional District, um, formerly Adam Schiff's district. My guest today is Gerard Redivosian, one of the candidates for that, I would say, quite contentious race. And we're going to talk a little bit about the lack of healthcare expertise, especially public health expertise in Congress as it stands, and uh, why Gerard wants to make a change to that. So welcome to the show. Jonah, thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here with you. So first of all, let's let's just talk a little bit about you, because um, you've had a really interesting background um, working with the Biden administration, working on, on public health throughout the, the pandemic. Tell, tell me a little bit about your story and, and, and tell the folks who are listening sort of how you've ended up here. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, it's, uh, you know, for me, I've always, you know, I'm I'm the son of Armenian immigrants, you know, as uh, any good uh, Armenian son is, you know, I always had an interest in medicine and, uh, you know, started pre-med early uh, in my educational career. I remember at being a pre-med major at UCLA. Uh, there was always an interest that I had in in something else as well, and that was politics. And so I always tried to, uh, I was, you know, continuing the pre-med track and was destined to go to medical school. I remember even taking the MCAT and um, doing a post-baccalaureate program, you know, at, at, in, in California. But the more I got interested in, in, in doing um, political work and learning about some public health issues like HIV, and I remember vividly uh, this class I took in college called, um, oh gosh, I'm trying to remember the name. It was, it was something like infectious disease in politics. I think it was literally that called that. And I was like, infectious disease in politics. What, what do those two things have to do with each other? Right. And it was, it was almost like the fusion of two of my interests and, and that not to overstate it, but that co- course really opened my eyes and changed my whole outlook on issues like HIV, for example, that I've devoted my career on and worked on for the last 20 years, but it made me understand, you know, how complex some of these um, issues are with regards to the impact that a virus can have um, on issues related to uh, religion, you know, politics, social economic status, cultural issues, and how that ecosystem is so, um, you, you know, related. And so that that led me to a field of public health where I eventually got a public health degree. In, in Boston at BU, a master's degree, and then more recently got a doctoral degree from Johns Hopkins, where I studied the COVID-19 response um, in, in low and middle income countries. So uh, public health eventually became a, a way to satisfy both my interest in medicine and, and health, but also uh, the connectivity it has to politics. Um, and so uh, it's, it's where I've been since. Great. So what was really interesting to me about your your pitch that that came to me is is this notion that even though Congress is lately very interested in pharma and pharma, I think, has has been forced to to be pretty interested in what Congress is up to after the IRA and and with the current um, inquiries. Uh, and I know this is is not just um, 
not just the House, but also the Senate, um, but that in, in across both houses, there's really no one who's actually worked in pharma at this point. And I know that's not always been the case. Um, so, so that's interesting that that perspective is missing. And that might sort of explain why some of the recent legislative attempts um, have, have clashed so badly with the industry. So I'd love to kind of hear your, your take there on, you know, kind of how we got here and, and what it means. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting point. You know, I think my team and I kind of stumbled upon that almost accidentally. We were researching how many um, physicians and nurses uh, are members of Congress. And then we looked at, I remember saying, well, that's not the full picture. Let's look at how many, you know, uh, members there are with advanced degrees, like PhDs in, in a health topic, you know, and we didn't find, uh, I think we found only one or two. And then, and then we broadened the scope out and said, well, what about chemistry or biochemistry, anything physics, anything that touches healthcare? Again, the return was zero. And it was really an enlightening moment for my team and I when we, when we realized that, you know, Congress controls so much of the, um, of the, of the spending that, you know, we, we spend in this country on healthcare, uh, healthcare is and the large, one of the largest, you know, percentage of the budget as well. Yet there's so few uh, members of Congress who actually have a health background or any advanced training in health, health, um, health related issues, let alone experience in, in, in the pharmaceutical life sciences sector, like you said, and we looked it up and we didn't find any. And so it, it really is one of those issues where representation matters, Jonah, and I talk a lot about that in my campaign and uh, on a number of levels, by the way, you know, so not just uh, as it relates to one's identity. Uh, for me, that's important because I'm Armenian American, I'm LGBTQ American, I'm a son of immigrants. Those identities are an important part of the way I show up, the way I look at issues, the way I approach uh, policy challenges and and those identities sorely need representation in Congress. But also as a healthcare leader now who has a doctoral degree in public health, that that kind of representation is also needed in Congress to address and and uh, some of the big challenges that that you alluded to uh, with regards to the IRA and and so much more, right? And and I think that is something that we we have to really think about in terms of the the makeup of the committees in Congress how we're actually involving and members of Congress with that kind of background and, and then ultimately what kinds of coalitions are we building and, and consultations are we doing to actually create uh, legislation that's going to impact and, and make a difference in, in people's lives. Because so much, so much is on the line with regards to not only cost, uh, but also people's lives. What do you think about something like the the drug cost provisions in the IRA? I mean, what the good and bad there, and sort of how would you approach the very legitimate kind of public and patient concerns about drug prices in a way that's also um, f- fair and and um, sort of economically viable for for the pharma companies? Yeah, well, it's it's a it's top of mind for me and. Many constituents that I talk to, Jonah, they, including my own family members, you know, my mom's a cancer survivor and she was very scared and uh, of, you know, her health care bills and 
Uh, and, you know, I believe that, you know, healthcare fundamentally is a human right and uh, that no one should, uh, you know, be afraid um, to access healthcare or be turned, turned, turned away for, for care or treatment or not have access to medication because of, you know, a, a ability to pay, right? So fundamentally, those are my values. Now, we, we have a system in place that is, is, is a for-profit healthcare system. And we, you know, we have, um, uh, you know, companies that are working in the ecosystem, but it's important to understand, and, and the companies are for-profit, it, but one of the things that I worry when I, and I've, we didn't mention this, but I've spent seven years in, in, in pharma. I've worked for Gilead Sciences. I was doing a lot of their work in the corporate social responsibility space, and I'm, I'm happy to come back to that and talk about what we did there. But that really was an eye-opening experience for me because I really learned about, you know, the, the complex ecosystem in which these companies operate. Uh, and they operate with other hospitals. They operate with pharmacy benefit managers. They operate with you know insurance companies, and and they have to execute um, supply chain uh, mechanisms that are extremely complex and uh, have multiple pieces. Sometimes in different countries, you know. And we learned how the supply chain can be impacted during a COVID uh, you know global pandemic, right? When one country closes its borders. Et cetera, et cetera. My point is like it's extremely complex, and this, but unfortunately, it's the system we've got, right? And so, I think what the IRA did was really, I think the Biden administration, which I was a part of, has been really committed to wanting to lower prescription drug costs. Like president Biden has made this a, a campaign priority, and the president has delivered. He's done this, by the way, both globally and domestically. Um, you know, for your global audience. Remember with the trips flexibilities. You know, the president announced that he was he was looking into trips flex flexibilities. This was negotiations around COVID nineteen vaccines, and and that that's a huge deal. You know, it, it ended up not uh, leading to uh, the the vote that the WTO wanted, but but the point is that the president was not afraid to direct his team to look at certain things on on how to reduce. Uh, a drug price. I think with the IRA, as your listeners know, it allows Medicare to negotiate prices for certain drugs. And I think there are ten, three rounds of them, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and, you know, I think it, it definitely does address, it, it is one way to, to, to lower the cost of drugs for, um, but it, we also have to look at what that, what are some of the unintended consequences of, self, of something like that? And the truth is, um, it will lead to lower revenue for some companies, uh, depending on where those drugs fit in the company's, you know, um, overall uh, revenue forecast. So it definitely hurts the bottom line of, of companies. You can argue whether that's good or bad. For me, the concern, Jonah, is really what does it, we have to ask ourselves, will it impact, you know, the kinds of um, investments that companies make and the decisions that companies make about research and and and, and discovery? You hear a lot of about R&D and percentage of a, a company's um, overall spending to R&D. And usually that's really high because of the cost of drug manufacturing, the cost of clinical trials and the cost of research, et cetera. But, you know, I worry that these kinds of policies may, may impact um, companies to be more cautious about the risks that they take. And that ultimately will have an impact on, on innovation. And I think more importantly, however, if I could just add, I think I'm more worried about the impact it's going to have on smaller biotech companies. 
when you look at biotech and, and at Los Angeles and California in, in general is rich with biotech companies, small, medium size, those, the greatest innovation is actually happening at that level, those small biotech companies. That's where you see these firms taking bigger risks. Um, and I, I worry that the signal that we're sending to them is, is one that is not necessarily in a, acknowledging the kind of innovation that comes from them. And, and it's a risk that, you know, their uh, investors uh, may be pulling out, uh, you know, and, and, and th that can curtail some significant advancements that we, we typically see from that space. So for me, I, when I would look at policy, I'd, I'd always want to look at the entire ecosystem as it relates to the impact that these laws may have. And, and figure out what are the other levers that we could pull without ultimately harming the ecosystem of innovation that we need to, to allow these uh, medicines to, and the science to, to flourish. Let's talk a little bit about PEPFAR, um, the, the, uh, the president's um, emergency plan for AIDS relief. That's, that's a program that you helped to oversee um, when you were at the State Department. Um, and for, for folks who don't know about PEPFAR, what, what it is and, and, and why it's important. Give, give, us a, give me a little, a little bit of a, a, a grounding there. Sure. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to talk about this. One of my favorite topics. Um, you know, this was one of the, um, this is the largest foreign assistance uh, program that the United States government has ever undertaken. Over a hundred million dollars, hundred billion dollars, excuse me, have been invested in the global HIV response. It was started by President uh, George W. Bush and with support from the Congressional Black Caucus and, and leadership from members of Congress that uh, really uh, was, was driven by a, you know, a moral consciousness to want to fight the HIV uh, epidemic uh, that was ravaging many, many countries across Africa. Uh, President Bush's leadership allowed for $15 billion uh, to be allocated in 2003, over five years, and that eventually turned into $48 billion for PEFAR's second authorization. And so this is, and this is now the signature, the largest foreign policy initiative uh, that the United States has undertaken in partnership with African countries mostly. There are some that are in Asia as well, and that's to, to eradicate the HIV uh, epidemic in in in, in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, the program that I had the honor of working with had just celebrated its 20th anniversary last year and announced that it had saved 25 million lives. Think about that: 25 million lives are are 25 million people are alive because of U.S. taxpayer support, and that's just incredible. Over five million babies were born. HIV free, you know, to their, you know, because uh, because of PEPFAR's innovations and, and PEPFAR support and the innovation that we saw from pharmaceutical companies that created these drugs that allowed people to to live healthy lives. Right. And so PEPFAR is a, is a is something that all Americans should be proud of. And unfortunately, it's one of the issues that has currently been hijacked in Congress by extreme Republicans who are holding it hostage to negotiations around broader social issues, which are totally not germane to the issue at hand. And I hope Congress moves quickly in, in, in reauthorizing PEPFAR so the life-saving work continues without delay. Historically, has it had bipartisan support behind it? Yes, it has since its inception. Um, I mentioned President Bush, but every single president after President Bush, including President Obama, including uh, President Trump, 
uh, and then President Biden have have put their signature pieces to to enhance the PEPFAR program. And Congress has always, always supported its passage in a bipartisan fashion. You know, PEPFAR is one of those things that brought together one of the most extreme members of Congress, uh, you know, in my opinion, Jesse Helms. And and on the other side of it, uh, my former boss, one of the most liberal members of Congress, Congresswoman Barbara Lee. So if you can get Congresswoman Barbara Lee and and Jesse Helms to agree on something, that that's a remarkable achievement, right? And and PEPFAR was one of those things that 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 brought them together. And um, it has been bipartisan every single year for the last 20 years, and and now that's currently at risk. Uh, and and we need Congress to take action immediately because all those lives are on the line. Your listeners may know that you know when we're fighting HIV, HIV still requires a daily oral treatment. So it's a once a day pill that you take for the most part and you know your viral load is suppressed and you and you have a healthy normal life but uh, but that is something that has to be maintained right and for, for your life. And so that's why the PEPFAR investments continue to be very very crucial and and sorely needed. So I we're running through our time but I have a few more things I want to talk about. I want to talk a little bit about pandemic preparedness. Uh, I know that COVID-19 is very much still an ongoing issue, but there's also a question of sort of being more prepared for the next pandemic than we were for, for this one. Um, yeah. it, what are some of the steps that you think uh, it's, it's important for the government to be taking right now um, around infectious disease, around pandemic preparedness? Thanks. You know, this was, this was my doctoral thesis and did a lot of work around how do we learn from the COVID-19 vaccine rollout to uh, be able to, you know, inform and strengthen pandemic responses in the future. You know, drawing from my experience at PEPFAR and then formerly at Gilead, one of the things that I think it's important for people to understand is on the global front where we have systems in place for pharmaceutical companies to license their, their, their IP, their intellectual property, to uh, either directly to generic manufacturers or to this um, third party called the Medicines Patent Pool, which is which is a, an independent agency that uh, pools IP from different companies and then it organizes licensing agreements with generic manufacturers all around the world. It's it's a beautiful mechanism that has proven to be effective over the last twenty years since its inception in in making sure that IP is protected for companies that create these innovations for for HIV or other diseases now and it and and it so it pulls the IP from the companies that are that license it to the medicines patent pool and it negotiates uh, you know contracts with generic manufacturers that operate in 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 different settings and and those generic manufacturers are able to produce at a much lower cost the the same you know uh, API and technological uh, uh, methods, the, the medicines uh, at a more affordable cost for use in low and middle income settings. Companies like Gilead were the first to license to the MPP uh, and were the, some, were the first to license, voluntarily license their IP to, uh, to generic manufacturers. This was a hallmark of what ultimately lowered HIV drug prices and made them possible to get all across Africa. And I think this is a model that we should be looking at as it relates to the next pandemic. When COVID emerged, you saw companies uh, license their their uh, technologies to the medicines patent pool. They were slow, and we have to acknowledge that 
they they these things should have happened uh, even before um, you know their their COVID treatments and vaccines were were uh, approved by the FDA uh, because by the time they were and and they're still being licensed now it was too late for millions of people who didn't have access to uh, an oral treatment or a vaccine so I think as we're looking at preparing for the next pandemic rather than talking about uh, you know, ways to uh, manufacture products, which I think are important to do in different continents. And and that and there's been a lot of discussion around creating these regional hubs for manufacturing. We also need to ensure that companies are thinking about having licensing agreements that allow manufacturing to happen for different settings in the world, including low and middle income settings. Um, and so they should be working with manufacturers in Africa. They should be working with manufacturers across Asia because they exist. And uh, those, if those licensing agreements are put in place early, then when the next pandemic hits and the innovation happens from, from companies, uh, the manufacturing is happening at the same time and companies are able to, uh, countries and, and people are able to benefit um, from the innovation at the same time. And that's, that's how we're going to uh, beat uh, the next pandemic. I think we also, the other main uh, learning, Jonah, is about financing. We can't be cheap if we're going to try to fight a pandemic. We learned this with COVID, um, and it was a painful lesson to learn. I think one of the things that the Trump administration deserves credit for is uh, Operation Warp Speed. And they they invested billions of dollars, you know, and I'd I'd argue there was not enough transparency in the way the money was invested and some of the contracts that were signed with the companies, but I'll give them credit for the scale uh, and the and the amount in which they invested, and that allowed for companies to take risks. It allowed. And remember, we were talking about small biotech companies. Uh, a small small biotech company, by the way, before COVID was Moderna. Moderna is no longer a small biotech company, but it's an example of how Moderna had you know, an innovation of an mRNA. Uh, modality that was supported by by CEPI and other organizations, but because the United States invested several billions of dollars, it it, it, it enabled you know Moderna to to rapidly scale up its its technology when it was ultimately shown to be effective, and and that's why we have a Moderna vaccine. And now that Moderna vaccine uh, is is leading is helping to to conceptualize vaccines that can one day be used for HIV or or, or other areas. And so I think we have to look at funding and and ensure that we're supporting public health departments, public health uh, systems all across our own country, first and foremost, because healthcare workers have to be trained in infectious disease control um, and public health departments have to be funded because they've been chronically underfunded for several years. And then we also have to uh, support the network of laboratories and disease surveillance networks that have been set up all across the world and 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 help other countries enhance their their d- disease detection and health systems uh, at, at the same time we have to reject the notion that we can protect ourselves by our borders uh you know and and, and stay safe we've learned that lesson so many times um, over the years and we and most recently with covid so diseases know no borders. And so we have to work with other countries. We're united. We, if there's one thing that brought us all together uh, during COVID, and that's the fact that all of us were vulnerable and all of us had to fight COVID and win together, because uh, that ultimately that's what uh, beating a pandemic means. And so 
those are some of the learnings that I had documented in my own research, but I think we we need to make sure that we're focusing on as we're getting ready to fight the next pandemic. I know there are negotiation, negotiations happening at the World Health Organization about a treaty and all this other stuff with regards to sharing of data, et cetera. Those are really important. I hope that there's a good outcome there uh, that folks are, are negotiating, but many of the answers we already know and many of the answers we can already implement starting now. We don't need a treaty uh, to be signed before we take steps to prepare for the next pandemic. So we're running low on time, but I do want to just talk about your race a little bit uh, because it's it's definitely very interesting. Um, it's a little outside my usual wheelhouse, but you've got the primary coming up in, in just over a month. And in a race like this, the, the primary is pretty much the, the main ball game. Um, you're, you're facing a wide range of, of opponents, um, including Fred Savage's brother and a drag queen. Um, it's, it's kind of a, a crazy, very California kind of situation. Um, how, how's it going? What's your strategy? Uh, what's your main message to the people as, as you kind of do this, this last push? Yeah, well, you know, I, I love that you mentioned those two. Uh, of my many candidates, but you're right. It's a very California, it's a very Los Angeles race. You know, this is, there's an awesome opportunity here uh, because we're all in this race to replace a really impactful and well-known member of Congress, Adam Schiff. This is Adam Schiff's seat. You know, he's well-known for the work he did to help protect our democracy and hold President Trump accountable for for, for January 6th and everything else that went down during the dark chapter in American history. And, and uh, you know, this race, there's no one else that has the kind of not only healthcare leadership and background that I have as a public health doctor, uh, but also the federal experience, John. I've, I've worked in Congress, um, as, as I noted earlier, I worked for Congresswoman Barbara Lee for four years, and, and I worked at the State Department more recently with the Biden administration and my private sector experience. That, that set of Federal experience, private sector experience makes me uh, one of the most informed and ready uh, candidates to, to be able to do the job on day one. I already know how, how Congress works. I already know exactly what to do uh, uh, if voters, uh, if I have their trust and in, in, in their vote. And, and I think that is um, something that, and healthcare is something that comes up almost every single day, uh, as I mentioned. And so I'm constantly talking about how we can look at the ecosystem of issues that impact healthcare costs and uh, and and work to lower drug costs, make healthcare more accessible. I talk a lot about health equity and advancing, you know, equitable outcomes for for all communities. Um, I talk a lot about restoring trust in public health too. You know, this is a big issue after the overpolitization of the COVID response. You know, we saw a dip in the public's trust in the way our institutions. Uh, you know, handle handle health. And so we have to remove politics from agencies like the FDA and CDC uh, so that uh, we could restore the public's trust and and not make these and, and leave science and evidence to, to drive decision making. And then I also talk a lot about AI. AI is something I know you've covered in your in your podcast, but it's top of mind here because we're in Los Angeles, you know, the birthplace of of, uh, you know, the film industry uh, the where you saw a lot. Uh, writers and and actors striking for you know nearly six months for better pay and expressing concerns about AI and the impact it has on their own jobs. But AI also has huge impact on healthcare. And while I'm 
cautiously optimistic about uh, Congress's ability to regulate AI so that it's safe and responsible. I'm actually really excited about what AI can do to um, streamline drug discovery, uh, optimize clinical trials, strengthen supply chains. You know, some of the stuff that we've been talking about earlier about how to lower healthcare costs and and lower um, prescription drug costs. I think AI can really help in that regard too, and, and maybe be responsible for you know new discovery. So. These are issues that are exciting, that are alive and well in the campaign trail here in L.A., and we have an opportunity to uh, elect a, a healthcare leader to, to go and, and solve some of these big challenges, whether it's the future of IRA or, or the future of um, other drug pricing uh, issues that Congress needs to tackle and, and, and ultimately expanding more uh, accessibility to, to uh, Medicare and, and health because health is, is everything, and that's something that I'm focused on. Absolutely. Do you think that healthcare and some of the things we've been talking about, especially around um, public health, are, are are salient issues for for your voters right now, for Democratic California voters? Yes, for sure. Healthcare is um, healthcare comes up a lot, and um, as I mentioned, the AI angle with healthcare comes up a lot, and prescription drugs comes up a lot too. You know, I think we. We we have to do a better job of of communicating what's in the IRA. You know, we're we're having a very wonky conversation right now, but most people don't know what the Inflation Reduction Act is has done to lower the prescription or to start lowering prescription drug costs. But I think people are still concerned about healthcare costs. They're concerned about visiting doctors because they're concerned about uh, bills, and uh, it's definitely top of mind for sure. Uh, so I and I and I lean in on, lean in on healthcare issues because uh, there's connectivity with health and the environment. There's connectivity with health and technology that are on people's minds. Like I mentioned AI earlier, uh, and so those issues come up uh, very regularly. And 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 I make it make a point for 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 folks to understand that Congress needs more healthcare leaders. Congress needs more healthcare leaders who understand the way the private sector works and how to harness uh, the innovation that the private sector creates for good, but then also look at the models that have uh, been utilized to enable access for for people here uh, in our country and around the world. And those models exist. We just have to know how to harness them and, and, and utilize them and support them. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of what I'm sure is a busy schedule for you right now, Gerard. It's been a pleasure talking to you and good luck. Oh, the pleasure has been mine, Joan. I can talk about these issues all the time. Thanks for the spotlight you're bringing and all the good work you do as well. That concludes this episode of the Pharma Forum podcast. You can find more information about this episode, including a download link and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com slash podcast. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher, and Podme where you can find and subscribe by searching for PharmaForum. And don't forget to visit our website, where you can sign up for daily news and analysis bulletins, and to follow us on Twitter at at PharmaForum. Thanks for listening.